State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Brent Brookbush, a doctor in physical therapy and the CEO and founder of the Brookbush Institute. Brent has been in the health and wellness industry since 1998 and an impassioned educator for nearly 10 years, developing a presentation style that is clear and engaging. He has been focused on optimizing evidence-based, skill-centric education for all human movement professionals. As a resource to industry giants from Shape Magazine, Town Sports International, Equinox, and the National Academy of Sports Medicine, Brent is grateful to affect thousands of lives every single year as president and founder of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Science. The Brookbush Institute provides the ability to get certified and get education courses for one low monthly fee. If you're interested in getting some continuing education, I highly suggest that you go and look up the brookbushinstitute.com. Now, in this episode, we talk all about posture and pain, movement compensation, and these different stabilization systems that the body has and what that actually means to your training. That's enough talking from me. Let's dive right in. All right. Welcome, Brent, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you? I'm good, man. Awesome. Definitely doing all right. It's yeah. Monday. It's busy. It's crazy, but uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, for me, I've been renovating a new house for the past uh, three or four weeks, so that's been an adventure because I'm putting a new studio and office in the basement. So um, it's been good a lot luck. of work. Yeah. Super busy. Uh, and I want to be done before the Christmas comes. So we will, we'll, we'll see. I've only renovated once for uh, a condo I had in Jersey City, and it was the most stressful six weeks I can remember. Like I don't, <laughs> I, I would not wish that on anybody. Renovation is rough. Yeah, yeah, and it's very dusty. It's very dirty. There's a lot of dust now. I'm doing the drywall, and whoo, 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 it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, We've never actually met, but I yep. know, as you said before, I know a lot more probably about you than you do about me, because I have followed a lot of the stuff that you've put out for personal trainers, for allied health professionals, both, you know, stemming all the, all the way to manual therapy stuff. So I've watched some of that on, on YouTube. Awesome. Um, so a lot of the stuff that you've had, I've kind of followed over the years and um, I want, so I know a lot about you. 
but some of our listeners may not know quite as much and I want them to get to know you. So can you just tell them a little bit about you and how you got to where you are um, in the industry right now? Sure. I think uh, the quick and dirty version is, you know, I'm a professional like you and I just have a passion for education. Like, I think the education in our industry was really bad for a lot of reasons, Mm -hmm. Um, from delivery to access to price to, you know, not having many professionals who even pay attention to education as a science and what, what the skills are that make for a good educator. You know, when you start looking about improving retention, comprehension, application, those are different than just having good information. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, oh man, I think probably for the last 16, 17 years now, I've been, I've been at this education thing. Now I, I do have a, a bachelor's in sports management, a master's in exercise science and a doctorate in physical therapy. So, you know, I've been a, a professional since I was 18. I've been a personal trainer yeah. um, and then a physical therapist, of course. So I've been both on the fitness side and, and somewhat the sports performance side. And then, you know, but more on a one-on-one role. Um, and then, of course, I've been on the clinical side, on the rehab side. So, yeah. you know, I think in a nutshell, that's me. Um, where I'm at now, of course, is is the CEO of this this growing education company. Um, which has its own particular set of challenges. And we keep trying to work on how to improve the education landscape. And it's, it's complicated. It brings mm-hmm. in a lot of other problems that a lot of people probably never even considered. Like, you know, I, I have to create a platform that's easy to use. And, yeah. and that, that user experience is a, is a big part of it, just from an access standpoint, as well as a convenience standpoint. And you know, and then of course accreditation, which is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> but you know, we have to deal with all that stuff. So, um, on top of all the academic-ish work that I do, right, like the yeah. continuously writing comprehensive lit reviews to make sure that our stuff is as accurate as possible. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's where that comes from for me. You know, I think an evidence-based approach, making sure all of our courses are are built upon these comprehensive lit reviews, which I think were the first education company to try to do that. Mm. But in the back of my head, I'm going, this is really important because students trust us. Yeah. You know, you're going to be trusted. Like you can't just throw out your opinion and then test people on it. That there, there, there's a, there's an ethical dilemma there. Mm. I want to make sure that <laughs> if I am wrong, it was because I used the best possible information to come to a conclusion and things changed later on. I don't want to give the wrong information because I didn't put in the work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we're going to put in the work for you and try to make sure that we're the most trustworthy education platform out there. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's kind of a nutshell of, of stuff. I mean, I could go into my, my past and stuff, which is a little, I did not come to this in one straight line. <laughs> I can tell you that. So anybody who's on their second career or third career or adding this, like, don't, don't worry. Like most mm-hmm. of us are, I think in this field, most of us are second careers, at least in this yeah. field. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see when I talk to uh, other educators, other fitness and allied health professionals, and just watching or listening to their stories about how they've kind of meandered through and just found their way to 
um, whatever they're doing now with regards to education and how they got to that point. It was really, it's really interesting. So, yeah, yeah so I can appreciate the, the second career and the amount of time it's taken you to get to where you are. I've been through some accreditations and I know how terrible they are. I haven't gone outside of Canada before. So I can only imagine because you do stuff in the States in Canada, you do stuff overseas. So I can only imagine. Yeah. And then of course we have multiple levels of professionals from personal trainers, to physical therapists uh, to ATCs. And then now we're working on, um, the state board of education and, uh, some higher up stuff as we try to, you know, we've already put the certification and CEC thing under one nineteen ninety nine a month umbrella. Yep. That was huge. A, a big thing that I wanted to make sure we did that every course you took counted mm-hmm. for both CECs and certification that it was affordable. Yeah. Um, and now we're trying to see if we can fit a master's degree under that same umbrella so that every course you took would also count towards a master's degree. Wow. Uh, which is a whole nother level of accreditation and very yeah. complicated. And, you know, now we're going through state board regulation and dealing with government industry, government um, departments and stuff like that. Like it's, we really do work hard for our colleagues. I, oh, if, yeah. if there is a bigger fan out there of our colleagues than us, I haven't found them yet. Like <laughs> we, we push really hard. We, yeah. we make some big sacrifices to make sure that education is better. Yeah. Well, I love it. So speaking about education, let's let's dive into some uh, specific topics. And one thing that um, I wanted to ask, because you hear different things all over the place. Uh, I, I remember I was in Australia once uh, with uh, Thomas Myers, who I know you are fami- very familiar with. And uh, I was taking a, a two-day workshop with him. And uh, we were talking about posture. We were talking about pain and posture. And somebody stood up and said, it's been proven that posture has no implications on pain. Like they're not related, like, cause you can have pain and not have poor posture. You can have poor posture and not have pain. And uh, it was, I, I found it really funny. Like at the time, this is probably four or five years ago now. And at the time I'm like, okay, you're a, I believe they were a chiro or a physical therapist or something. Cause that was the audience that was typically there. And I'm like, well, you know more. I haven't actually looked into the literature on posture and pain and the relationship between the two. But I'm like, just thinking critically, just thinking like logically, that doesn't make sense. So I wanted to take, I wanted to get your perspective on that and your, and now that we've just talked about all the literature reviews that you do, not necessarily your opinion, but what you have found within the literature to be true regarding posture and pain or injury. Well, you've kind of set up an interesting conversation here, right? Like with that story, number one, let's start here. Most people who say research says have no idea what research says. (laughs) I'm calling them out. Like, and we call them out all the time. There are so many fakes out there Mm -hmm. who go, it's been proven. Research says, and all they're really doing is parroting some guru on Instagram. Yeah. Research does not say there is no correlation between posture and pain. That has, that has never been demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think it's very important that you look at what your source material is, because there are some systematic reviews out there that fail to refute a null hypothesis. Right. But mm-hmm. we have two problems. There. Number one, systematic reviews are secondary sources. Yeah. Right. They're not primary data. 
And when a secondary source says, hey, we couldn't refute the null hypothesis, they're not saying that there was no evidence. Mm -hmm. What they're saying is, is that when we looked at the original data and tried to run it through this mathematical model, this statistical tool, to see if we could combine this data, it didn't work. That's all you can pull. Yeah. You can't then go on and, and use a failure to refute the null as evidence of a contrary position. The null hypothesis is the hypothesis of nothing. To fail to refute the null hypothesis proves nothing. Mm -hmm. Like this is a huge point that I, 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 it almost frustrates me when I, when I hear it from my colleagues because I'm like, you guys are doctors, at least in the United States, right? Yeah. Physical therapists are doctors. You published research. You, you had an introduction to research methods. You had a statistics course. You're supposed to know this, mm -hmm. right? But we have these guys mostly what ends up happening is you find one systematic review that fails to refute the null. They cherry pick a secondary source and then claim that it like refutes all other research. Like they use it like a nuke yeah. on the, on the field of research. And it's like, yeah, man, that's, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And and I'm giving people credit. I, I do go back to our first statement. I think most of the time when people say research says they're just parroting Instagram gurus. Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, did you actually read research? Because here's the truth, you know, these predictive models of postural dysfunction, which we'll get to what that means in a second, mm -hmm. that I've been working on for a big portion of my career with the intent of trying to refine our interventions, right? I want to come up with the most accurate methodology possible because again, going back to, I just want to be as accurate as possible for my colleagues and I want to optimize outcomes for my patients and clients. Yeah. Right? That is my goal. I don't have any other goal. Right. So you look at these people who are holding up these, these, these study, these systematic reviews, or they're just parroting gurus. And it's like, well, what's your goal? Yeah. Right. Like, are you just dismissing it? Cause you don't want to learn it because as I've gone through and tried to put this stuff together, I can tell you there's thousands of studies that have contributed to these predictive models. Mm -hmm. So when you say there's no research, I'm looking at you going, what? Thousands, thousands of studies. Yeah. Like, what, what are you talking about? Well, take what I just said, right? Cherry picking systematic reviews or just parroting Instagram gurus. And then we run into the next problem, which is what is the definition of posture? Yeah. And this runs into a huge set of problems as well. You have a colloquial definition of posture, right? Like, are you sitting up straight in that chair? And then you have this implied uh, use of the word posture that would be closer to the way Yanda used posture or mm -hmm. Sarman or Lewitt or like NASM, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and now, of course, the Brookbush Institute. When we're talking about posture, right, and we have this definition writ written out somewhere on the website and in the glossary. We're talking about the optimal arthrokinematic and osteokinematic motion of bones and joints as they are controlled by optimal length and activity of the, the myofascial system mm -hmm. under the control of the nervous system. That's a really different definition of posture than my mom told me to stand up straight. Yeah. <laughs> right? So... We have to make sure that when we're having this debate that, you know, the, the naysayers aren't going, well, your mom telling you to stand up straight had no effect on pain. 
is not related to the definition of posture that I'm talking about. Yeah. Because those are not the same thing. When I talk about posture, I'm really talking about a predictive model of correlated impairments. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm building this model of like, uh, for example, if we're talking about lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction, what are the impairments? in that segment of the body. And we've basically segmented that portion of the body to help us take in the information, right? We gotta break it down somewhere, right? Otherwise you would end up with this model that was hundreds of pages long, but let's take the middle segment of the body and just try to look at that for a second. And I'm going, okay, we know that asymmetrical hip mobility is something that we might find. Mm -hmm. This might be seen in an asymmetrical weight shift during an overhead squat. During goniometry, we would actually see a difference between right and left sides, right, in our measurements. Yeah. And then somebody goes, well, anterior pelvic tilt isn't correlated with pain. Okay. It's actually weakly correlated with pain. It's not not correlated with pain. It's weakly correlated. And I agree. And they're like, well, see, that proves that posture and pain are... No, that doesn't. That proves that one sign within the lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction model we're building is not as strongly correlated. There are many other signs and impairments we can look at, mm-hmm. right? Like increased lumbar facet joint stiffness or increased mobility of lower lumbar facets or um, change in, changes in recruitment patterns of the core musculature. These are all very strongly correlated with, for example, low back pain. Right. So when we're talking about posture, we just have to make sure that like, okay, I'm talking about one thing. Are you talking about another thing? Yeah. Because I want to be accurate, right? I'm not trying to tell you that all posture has something to do with pain. And I'm trying to find a better approach. You know, there is definitely a correlation between posture and pain. You just have to be willing to learn more than what your mom said good posture looked like yeah right we'll get there um you know so i think that story you told you can tell where like from that story to what i just said we're so far apart Mm -hmm. that we're not even arguing about the same thing anymore yeah yeah. Yeah. And I like that, that in any discussion, like posture is definitely a big one because I think there's a lot of differences in kind of what people's definition of it is, as you mentioned in any, but in any argument or any discussion, you have to make sure that you, the definitions that you have of said, you know, posture in this case, they have to be the same. Or else you're just like you're you're comparing apples and oranges, right? Like you're not comparing the same things. You're not discussing or having a conversation about the same thing. So I like that. So yeah, the so other thing I've I've thought about a lot, uh, especially recently, is I've realized how many arguments are based on what's called the unsupported default position fallacy. Mm. And and I think this is worth some serious consideration. So. When the person who stood up and said, it's been proven there's no correlation between posture and pain, what was his position? Hmm. He's assuming that if he knocks you down, he's more right. Yeah. But he has no position. He has no position. His position is not supported by any evidence. 
So what are you, what position are you actually taking? Well, that posture and pain aren't correlated. What is correlated then? You can't just say nothing and then have somebody arguing with themselves on the relative importance of posture. Well, if posture was the only thing we had that was correlated, even if it was weakly correlated, it would still be the best thing we have. Yeah. Right. So what are you trying to compare posture to, which again, we could call pot the way we talk about posture is obviously very different. We have that problem, but like, if you're talking about a pain science model, right. Pain science, I love the, the pain science guys go straight to pain science education. Yeah. Pain science education research has shown pain science education by itself is so bad as an intervention to itself that it is often used as placebo in RCT studies, <laughs> right? So what are you, comp yeah. you're comparing me trying to correct asymmetrical hip mobility for lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction to what? Pain science education? Because I'm gonna win that argument. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying pain science education has no place. It absolutely does. And it does have a benefit when used as an adjunct therapy. But if we're just comparing the two, you you're on shaky shaky ground yeah. you know so go back to that what i was saying before we got to be careful when we create these debates which is very common right now mm -hmm. i don't know why it's gotten even more well we do know right social media spreads yeah. negative spreads negative and controversial topics at a rate about six times positive and informational top, topics mm -hmm. they've actually done some research on this so we know why this stuff is so popular to be controversial but um, we do have to consider like, okay, if somebody's being a naysayer, they're being a contrarian, they're being a nihilist, like what is their position and can you really rely on it? Yeah. Because everything is relative. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were talking about like social media, anything that is profound or contrary, as you said, contrary to what we've believed before, we take it as like, oh, that, well, that must be true because they're going against the grain. So they must be, yeah. they must have some knowledge that I don't have. So right. I'm going to continue going along with that because of that. Yeah. If I wanted to be popular tomorrow, I don't need to create a lit review on, uh, let's put it this way. If I solved the predictive model of lower extremity dysfunction all the way to a mathematically provable algorithm, which is our eventual goal. Mm -hmm. I would probably get less attention, despite the fact that that would be a huge stepping stone in our profession, Yeah. right? I would probably get less attention for that than going on tomorrow and saying bench press sucks. Yeah. With like no backing at all. I'm just gonna come out and say bench press sucks, take that, right? Yeah. Like, what yeah. are you gonna do about it, bro? Yeah. Um, or the, or the never get, squat again thing, you know, right? Like yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, don't bilateral exactly. squat or yeah. 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 The, the things that we get that are popular, like I put a post up that was like, oh, ass to grass holes. That's my, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. And my point was like the, the, the position we take is actually very conservative. What's my position? Use the largest range of motion you can without pain or compensation. Yeah. You don't have to go ass to grass. Yeah. There's actually, the research really doesn't support it. People are, ah, you have to go ass to grass or it doesn't count. And I'm like, squats are a good exercise, Yeah. right? And it ends up that squats are such a good exercise that they're good even when you do partial range of motion mm -hmm. 
and the research doesn't really show a huge difference between full range and partial range, depending on what we're talking about. In fact, like power training, really heavy quarter squats might be more beneficial than deep squats with a load that you could do deep squats with, right? Yeah. So, but it's funny, like we put this thing up, we take the super conservative position of use the largest range of motion you can. Just make sure there's no pain or compensation. Yeah. And people like flip out. Yeah. And then I post something about, you know, what the null hypothesis is, and I'm lucky to get 200 likes. <laughs> uh. Yeah, yeah, we could we could go off on a tangent about uh, all of the weird, crazy, uh, and then like just totally off things that you hear or see on social media. Like it, yeah, that could be an entire you know oh, yeah. two-hour podcast. My oh my. Okay, so yeah. so you wanted to continue on the posture conversation? Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about. Uh, you mentioned the neural side of posture and it kind of being the controller, right? So understanding uh, osteo and arthrokinematics within the joint, we want optimal centration of the joints. And then we want, you know, optimal tension on either side with regards to the, the, the myofascial, but like controlled with the nervous system. Cause you can't, you can't separate those three, right? Like no. those three can't be separated, but I, I love the, the neural system being in control there. And that if we, impact the nervous system, we can then impact the other two. So can you talk a little bit about the nervous control of posture and how that affects the, the myofascial system? Mm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay some, some interesting points down here. You really have to look at where you can have the largest impact. All right. Mm -hmm. So I understand that people like to talk about the nervous system or people like to talk about the fossil system in the last five years. My question always is, what is your potential to impact that system? Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is, is we're much better at impacting the muscular and articular systems, mm -hmm. right? So how am I going to impact the nervous system? I'm going to impact the nervous system by using all of the techniques I know that are effective to help optimize movement, right? And then reinforce that with some sort of integrated pattern. Mm -hmm. The only way I'm gonna affect the, the nervous system in the sense of like maybe desensitization if somebody has pain or altering motor patterns over time is to improve that movement quality and then reinforce it, right? Mm -hmm. With perhaps a home exercise program. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting when I hear guys talk about, oh, I'm affecting the nervous system. Yeah, more than gluteus medius activation. Like, I, I don't understand where you're getting at. Like, what do you mean you're impacting the nervous system more than I am? I mean, we could, we could do eye chart exercises and impact the nervous system. Like, what are you, like, this kind of comes back to that problem of like def definitions. Yeah. Right. What are you, what are you defining as a nervous system thing? Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we have to find the, the techniques that we have the most efficacy for. And even if we find again, that the muscular system is perhaps let's, let's say we just for lack of a better term right now, while the muscular system is only a third of pro movement problems, right? And then there's a third that goes to joints and there's a third that goes to nervous system. It's only 30% of what we need to deal with. Well, if you can affect that 30%, mm -hmm by 80%, but you can only affect the other two systems by 10%, your best bet is to go after the muscular system. Yeah. 
And this is, I think, a big thing that that is going to have to come up later in our, our profession. You know, as I start working, as I work on these predictive models of dysfunction, one thing I've ended up getting into is information theory, right? Because it all has to do with inputs and outputs and how strong is the input and, and how correlated are these things and how much can I actually affect them? One of the things I think that, that pain science has a problem with is the thing pain science is trying to affect, we don't have a lot of control over, mm-hmm. right? When you talk about like all of the mental stuff that goes on, especially as, as movement professionals, right? So if we're talking about physical therapists, kinesiologists, personal trainers, we're not cognitive behavioral therapists. Yeah, We're not PhDs who have a much better chance of affecting that system, but even they may not have the ability to affect the, the system and get as large a change in pain as we might be able to going after a joint technique. Mm-hmm. That input might actually be much, much stronger for now. And these are things that we have to get honest about. This isn't me trying like, you know, just all for, um, just to throw my biases out there. Like our value proposition for the education platform is all the education you need in a format that's accessible and affordable, right? Mm-hmm. Nineteen ninety nine a month. I don't have to promote anything, yeah. right? Let's make let's just make that very clear. I have hundreds of courses. If we took all of the joint manipulation courses off our site tomorrow, we'd still have hundreds of courses, yeah. right? Like it doesn't really change any dynamic. So, going back to this, if if I find that like joint manipulations are more powerful than IASTM then that's the direction that we're going to have to head. If I find that activation exercises are, are more effective than integrated techniques, for example, like a you know, gluteus medius activation versus squat to row by themselves, then we know we need to add gluteus medius activation in there. Yeah. Like we should all be going towards these inputs that get us the most bang for our buck and stop worrying so much about what system we think has the biggest influence like Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't matter if we can't affect it yeah does that make sense yeah it does and so talking about the difference between because you made you mentioned the isolation and the integrated types of exercises so when you're looking at talking about biggest bang for the buck and and it's probably and feel free to state this it's probably going to be different depending on the pattern, the muscle and the issue that the person has, but what Probably do you see? Actually. Okay. So what would you see as being the, the best or biggest yeah, so bang for your buck? The biggest bang for your buck is always going to be an integrated program. Mm-hmm. All right. So you can't, that's another thing we have to stop doing is, is this either or scenario, mm-hmm. right? Start thinking and right. So if I'm talking about, again, lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction, we have an asymmetrical weight shift. Could I try to do like, for example, the Gray Cook RMT, like band, you know, pulling into the asymmetry so that people have to push back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could do that. Chances are your carryover is going to be pretty bad if yeah. you do that by itself, right? I think that probably has to do with the fact that somebody compensated into an asymmetrical weight shift, which means they can probably compensate out of it. You might yeah. not have fixed all of the, the, the little issues. What's going to get you a much better effect is if you go, okay, I'm going to address all of my mobility issues. 
I'm gonna address the underactive muscles with isolated activation techniques to turn up neural drive. And then I'm gonna reinforce it with an integrated pattern, which could be the Gray Cook RNT technique. There's no problem with that, mm -hmm. right? But you fix the pieces. Now you have a chance of getting better carryover. You really have a chance of getting better carryover if you give a couple of those exercises as home exercise and get them to do it every day. Yeah. Right? So I think, I think that's where the most bang from the buck comes from. And the research is pretty clear. The research shows over and over and over again that integrated approaches are better than isolated approaches. Yeah. You know, in the physical therapy world, they're having this whole stupid debate of passive versus active. <laughs> You're an idiot. Um, and here's why. Because research has shown time and time again that passive and active work better than either alone. Yeah. Like that should be the end of the discussion. I mean, I can get even more technical and say that like in acute pain states, passive may actually be more effective than active. Like we do have some research that shows like manipulations may be more beneficial in early stages of low back pain or like release techniques or whatever might be more effective early on. Yeah. And nobody's arguing against the fact that everybody needs to leave with a home exercise slash self-management program. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's a great example of like, no, 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 the, the, the best is, is combined. Yeah. Right? That's, that's what we should be doing when it comes to activation versus integration techniques. No, no, it should be combined. I think, you know, if we look back at, at what Mike Clark, you know, the, the, the C, the former CEO of NASM, what his big contribution was, was like a system, system, systematic integrated approach. Yeah. You know, he really kind of, I, I don't, you couldn't say he invented it, but he really like was like, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to release, we're going to lengthen, we're going to activate, we're going to integrate. Boom, do that. And he like made that like a, a stamp, like a common thing. Yeah. Now the Brookwish Institute has like kind of blown that up a little bit. Now it's release, mobilize, lengthen if you need to, right? And then activation becomes like this activation circuit that includes reactive as well as isolated and the integrated exercises pull in the subsystems, which I know you like. Yeah. But the idea is to to use the best that we have together, mm -hmm. not to like pit things against each other that have no business being pitted against each other, which is better, mobility or activity. What's your problem? Like, yeah. why can't <laughs> I, we do all of it? Yeah, I mean, if you're a ballerina, you might need more activation than mobility exercises. Yeah. If you're a power lifter who, you know, has kind of been ignoring the mobility side of performance, like maybe you need more mobility than activation. Like, mm -hmm. It, but it, all of that is going to depend on your assessment and chances are even in those situations, you're still going to have a bit of both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I know you've got a lot of people who are maybe anti stretchers or, you know, anti self mobilizationers uh, and gathered. I get they're some all, of the, they're sorry. all anti assessors, yeah. which is their bigger problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So no, like understanding, that's actually where I wanted to go with this is understanding the why behind what you're doing, what you're doing and why you're choosing a specific tool that you have in your toolbox for a specific situation. So when it comes to like, let's just stick with, with mobility for a second. Sure. When we're looking at mobility, 
how do you help a, a, a new personal trainer or allied health, like allied health professionals, they'll be trained in this. Personal trainers aren't really trained in this when it comes to the baseline certifications, but asking the question why, right? You teach them in order to stretch, you do this. And here's all your stretches for the different muscle groups. And then you, then they get into the industry or they go on social media. And it's like, don't just stretch your hip flexor. Don't stretch your hamstring, right? It's, yeah it's one or the other. And so then they go the opposite direction. But I think the ability to ask the question, why is really important? Like, why are you stretching that muscle? Or why is it tight? Right? Like, yeah, yeah. Although I really empathize with my colleagues here, especially my new colleagues, and who I'm going to call in no condescending fashion students, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I know, there's a lot of students out there. And I don't mean to be condescending and put myself in highbrow professor land but i think when you're first coming into the industry you like don't even know what questions to ask mm -hmm. and there's a lot of problems that arise from i think you know if we were talking about information theory again it would be overfitting but um essentially you ask a question that forces you down a rabbit hole that is probably not relevant mm -hmm. right so why are you stretching your hip flexors well your hip flexors are tight well what does tight mean Right. Like already we're in a rabbit hole that like, whoa, where are we going with this? Yeah. Whereas what would have been better and, and what we try to do, and, and this is why, you know, we have these predictive models of dysfunction so that we know what to teach and, and where to start in, in our education platform is we really need to start with some base level assessment because we know that outcomes are going to be better when mobility techniques are based on assessment. Yeah. We really shouldn't be stretching things that aren't short, right? Mm -hmm. For lack of a better term. We really shouldn't be releasing things that aren't overactive, right? Yeah. So if you can't identify what those things are, then you have a problem. Now you can use predictive models like our lumbar pelvic hip model or our lower extremity dysfunction model or um, our upper body dys dysfunction model, which are essentially evolutions of the Yonda upper lower cross type stuff right yeah um you could use those to be more accurate than just some random general stretching program like we know that for example your tfl has propensity to get overactive your gluteus maximus does not yeah <laughs> nobody has tight glute max yeah. uh, like that doesn't happen but you see glute max stretches out there and i'm like oh, oh. <laughs> um so i think at the very least we could teach them overactive muscles based on a model. Mm -hmm. I think the next step is to teach them some simple assessments. Again, the overhead squat assessment. Now this is the overhead squat assessment we use. This isn't like the, the FMS overhead squat assessment, but this is identifying particular signs, feet flattened, feet turn out, knees bow in, right? Yeah. Teaching those basics of like, okay, if you see feet turn out, then the, the structures you should really be concentrating your mobility on are like the right? Because usually the, that's driven by a lack of dorsiflexion, mm -hmm. as well as your tibial external rotators, which are your biceps femoris, TFL, potentially your vastus lateralis, if we're getting into like fascial continuity, yeah. and then your lateral gastroc. And you like start very slowly integrating these lists of muscles based on signs. Yeah. And then we can build from there, right? Mm -hmm. And then after the overhead squat, we can talk about goniometry or or maybe some of the other crazier stuff that happens with like long overactive muscles versus short overactive muscles. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I like yeah, I like that with a with a quality assessment you it 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 basically answers those why questions for you when you do that. Right? So you have to understand well, you have to understand the patterns, right? You have to understand what you're looking for and and what that means, but it takes away having to about each individual thing or each individual muscle having to ask why. Right? right. Yeah. Cuz what we're I think the other thing we have to like keep in mind is what we're really concerned with is outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the why actually doesn't matter as much as people think it does. Yeah. Right. Like there's this thing called the Bradford Hill criteria of causation. And it talks about the fact that we don't actually have to know the mechanism to know that the outcome is predictable for yeah. a specific intervention. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't need to know how release techniques work to know that they work. Yeah. And, and sometimes that gets confused. I see that argument thrown around a lot on social media too. Well, you don't even know how foam rolling works. And I'm like, well, you don't even know how hypertrophy works. So why are you training at all? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we know as much about release techniques as we do about hypertrophy. And that's not to say that we don't know a lot about either one. We do, yeah. but we, there's a technical issue, a technology issue there where we have a really hard time following cellular processes in living people in real time. Yeah. Like that's, that's a technological barrier and you can't just throw out, well, because you don't know it, we don't know that this is effective. No, that's actually not the case. And the, the example I always use in my classes is aspirin. Mm -hmm. You know, there, aspirin is a, is a perfect example of an intervention for a problem to get an outcome that we have no idea how it works. And they're still trying to figure out how aspirin, work, aspirin works, right? But mm -hmm. we all take aspirin for headaches without try, even trying to identify what type of headache we have. By the way, guys, there's more than one type of headache. Yeah. Um, and we know that most of the time it works. And why do we take it? Because we also know it's low risk. So if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And when we're talking about movement professions, one of the things I think that's also, you know, we have a methodologist that we work, work with on the statistics and epistemology that goes into our reviews. And, mm -hmm. and the thing he brings up all the time is he's like, why do people argue about this stuff so much when the risks are low? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you? you're going to argue against foam rolling? Who yeah. cares? Like, what are you going to do to someone foam rolling? The risks are ridiculously low. Yeah. Right? Like, could somebody get hurt foam rolling? Sure, I guess. But we're talking like one in what, a hundred million hours of training, we're going to see an injury. Like, it just doesn't, the, the risk is so low that like understanding the cause and the mechanism isn't, isn't like pharmacology, right? Yeah. Where the risks could actually be really high. Yeah. Right. Because if you take in the wrong drug, that becomes a big problem. Mm -hmm. Right. We can't kill people with that. You're not killing people with foam rolling. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I guess we could all come up with a crazy scenario, but um, it would be really rare. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can also fall while walking. It doesn't mean we don't walk. Right. Exactly. Like, people yeah. have heart attacks on treadmills. Like, unfortunately, horrible things happen. And if you're in a club long enough, you know, or a clinic long enough, you're probably going to hurt somebody. Yeah. Like that's, you know, I, I think we need to have a realistic conversation about that. And you know, this is another rant that I get on is like, life is probabilistic. Yeah. I think way too many people argue as if answers are binary. Mm -hmm. Are my predictive, this goes back to your posture question too. Yeah. Well, I know somebody with terrible posture and no pain. Yeah, actually that's expected. Mm -hmm. You know, that's expected because what we're talking about is probabilities. We will always have people who have mild changes in posture and tremendous amounts of pain 
and we'll have people with horrible posture and no pain. And all that we're doing is seeing a normal distribution of cases related to posture and pain. But if we know that like 70, 80% of the people could fall under this umbrella of, let's say, I know we keep bringing up the lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction. Yeah. If we know that we can address 70 to 80% of the issues we see, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And we need to just recognize that. That's pretty good. Well, yeah. you have 10% on either side that maybe this isn't going to help. Okay, we'll create another model for that. Yeah. Let's, let's, try to get, let's try to get a really good model to start with rather than just throwing it out and having nothing to, to pit it against anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Not everything is going to be, is going to work for everybody. Like there's no, right. no like nothing. it's just nothing. nothing. Life is probabilistic. Yeah. Like this is, this is something that the whole world is having a hard time with right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we just had a pretty cantankerous election and in the United States, we have COVID mm-hmm. like, and then we have posture. All of this stuff has one thing in common probabilities yeah that's all it comes down to and if you understand the probabilities you understand that things aren't so binary mm-hmm. right um you know the covid it, cases it's it's tough well i wasn't affected by covid or i got covid and i didn't have any symptoms yeah that's expected yeah the problem is is covid it looks like the death rates could be as high as one percent mm-hmm. of clinical cases that's a lot yeah. Hundreds of thousands of deaths, right? Yeah. So is that important? Is, is, is one out of every hundred people you see in a hospital important to you? And you have to make that decision based on probabilities, not on outliers. Yeah. Posture works the same way. Or even our interventions work the same way, mm-hmm. right? Like if I do a manipulation, we know manipulations are pretty effective for lumbar spine pain, assuming that we don't have a radiculopathy, right? Yeah. Um, well, what if I do a lumbar manipulation and it doesn't work? <laughs> then it didn't work. Yeah. Try something else. <laughs> yeah. You know, does that mean I'm never going to do a lumbar manipulation again? Because one time it failed? No. Mm-hmm. If I know that six out of 10 times or seven out of 10 times it's going to work, I'm probably going with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think, you, I think you have to look at, you know, so as you said, you know, if six or seven out of 10 times it works, you might have like, two out of those 10 times it doesn't work and then you have one out of those 10 times or maybe half of like one out of 20 times that it makes it worse right sure. like there's there's always going to be on if you've got a center any, you're always going to have on either side you're going to have outliers on either side of that but any right? physical but, therapist who tells you that they've never flared up a patient is lying oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. right like yeah. have i flared up patients yes of course i've flared up patients man sometimes you do stuff and things don't go the way they that you thought they did. Have I ever made an assessment worse? All the time. But that's mm-hmm. why we assess and reassess is so that we can align our interventions as we go and really come up with a individualized program for somebody, yeah. right? If I could just predict with 100% accuracy via like these predictive models that I've been talking about, we wouldn't need practitioners at all. Yeah, yep. Right? But there is always going to be that need for higher level thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And problem solving. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I want to get back to um, kind of our discussion surrounding posture and talking about kind of the different areas. And I want to, because you mentioned it, and I think we talked a little bit about this off air, and I know I've watched several videos that you've done 
on this topic as, as well. And it's the subsystems because you see a lot, and maybe this is where we go with it, but you see a lot about, you know, the different ways to look at fascial lines or fascial slings or subsystems, or can you just simplify this whole thing? Cause you've got the, the anatomy trains kind of way of looking at it, um, you know, from eyebrow down the back, all the way down to the bottom of the foot idea of fascia. And then you have the idea of the fascial slings, and then you have the subsystems. Can you just kind of separate those for our listeners and not to say that they are separate, but just the thinking behind them and where we might apply them? Yeah. So they're all trying to get at the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what are these myofascial synergies? Um, and there's three different more or less approaches. I think, you know, Tom Myers anatomy trains, it's an excellent text to like pick up if you haven't really gotten into the fascial stuff yet. Um, the slings have been around a long time, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that you, you can see some early, early, like stuff in the sixties Yeah. talking about like people trying to figure out the relationship between like the rhomboids and serratus anterior because they're kind of continuous if you pull the scapula up right yeah um and and how does the serratus anterior function into the external obliques well you know then you kind of get into vleaming stuff with the subsystems mm-hmm. and i think the reason why we lean towards the subsystems is they're more evidence-based mm. Right. There's a little bit more research. I think it's a little bit more objective way of looking at, okay, I get the fascias involved. I get the muscles involved, but what is the research telling us about how these things work together? Yeah. Right. My one problem with anatomy is trains and I'm humbly critiquing somebody who has a couple of decades of experience on me is I think some of the fascial lines exist from a fascial perspective but they don't work together Mm. like some of the fascial lines i I look at them and i'm like yeah those muscles don't really work synergistically in any meaningful way yeah or it the way that things compensate for example like i know they have some stuff with like front line or back line dominance or tightness or whatever they want to use and i'm like yeah all the muscles in that line are not over yeah. or not underact, yeah. right? Like they, they're not acting uniformly. Yeah. So I'm not saying they have to, but I, I'm, I'm just saying it, it might be a weakness in, in the way those lines are set up. Mm-hmm. So the subsystems, like, again, going back to that, is myofascial synergies, so muscular fascial synergies that have more to do with one another based on how they're recruited. Okay. Right. And then what can we do with them? And the answer to that question is actually fairly small. This is one of those things where it's like, oh, really cool information. And it's like, what impact is it going to have on your program? Ah, like 5%. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so I think the subsystems are a great thing to learn because they start teaching you that the body does function in this integrated fashion in a very specific integrated fashion. Yeah. I think the integrationists who are like, you never should isolate anything are going way too far Yeah. because on the same token, they're going towards a very non-specific route. Mm-hmm. Right. 
but on the same token, it also doesn't work like your gluteus medius works in isolation. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So these subsystems, you know, we have the posterior oblique, anterior oblique, and deep longitudinal subsystem, which are the original gleaming subsystems. And then we added the intrinsic stabilization subsystem because it is definitely there. Um, that's kind of all of your intrinsics that have talked like uh, your intrinsic muscles as, as like Richardson, Hodges, and Hyatt's talk about. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the TVA and the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, the multifida. Yeah. You know, we brought that all together to kind of have a better understanding about how the core works. So for us, you know, the subsystems all relate to the core. Um, and I guess my innovation there was going, okay, how would these work in an integrated program? And we use them to refine our selection of which core exercise and which integrated exercise we're going to use as part of like a corrective exercise program based on assessment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where those subsystems come in. I yeah. think that's where the different, you know, you have different subsystems out there, but like I said, I think gleaming for, for what I've seen is the most evidence-based or research-based and of course we've added to them too i mean that's yeah that's the other thing i can't even really say i'm using gleaming subsystems although that's the base um we've kind of gone an additional step of integrating more research and more muscles that maybe should be included and uh yeah I mean, how we use them is just like okay well what are our big core exercises that we're going to use based on which subsystems have a propensity towards overactivity or underactivity and of course mm -hmm. which integrated exercise are we going to use which you know, the answer to these questions is pretty much like quadrupeds, bridges, and squat to rows are really cool. Yeah. That's um, <laughs> kind of your, if you can get those three things down to start with, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a, there have been a lot of companies, well, okay, not a lot of companies. There are a few companies that have gone, as you said, the complete, like everything is asymmetrical. It's, working on the subsystems. They don't do anything bilateral. They don't do anything isolation. Everything is like weird cable things twisting and then punching yeah. out kind of things. And uh, it like, it looks really cool. And uh, the one thing that I found is they are very, very opinionated on why they're doing what they're doing to the point that they attack other ways of training or or even things like yoga right like they'll attack doing like don't do yoga yoga is bad for you and these are all the reasons why yoga is bad for you and um yeah yeah i mean look we're it's funny that people even get upset with us and obviously you know we get trolled um and, and you know look it it just kind of comes with the territory i think yeah. you know if nobody's hating you nobody cares what you're doing <laughs> Um, you know, I saw that the other day and unfortunately it's true. Like I hate yeah. the hate. I, I hate it. I hate the hate. That is, that is a, that is, that is a statement that I'm going to, to say. I know that yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, um, and we're actually fairly conservative about all this stuff. Like I said, you know, what do I care about? Mm. Outcomes. That's it. What is going to get me the most reliable, largest effect with the largest carryover? Mm. You know, I don't, if those integrated exercises worked by themselves, I'd be using them. Yeah. They don't, right? Yeah. Like the carryover isn't good. They don't create a really large effect like you'd hope they would. Mm -hmm. You know, like if we're going to talk about, for example, like knee valgus, right? Functional knee valgus, knees bow in during the overhead squat. Mm -hmm. You can try a lot of stuff. 
But until you fix ankle mobility and activate gluteus medius by itself, you have no idea how good your outcomes could be. Yeah. Right. Like, and we, we've done this over and over and over again with, with, with trying to like test different stuff. I'm testing stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach our classes, assess, address, reassess. Yeah. Right. How many times should we, how often do you assess? Uh, five, six times a session. Right. Like people are like, Oh, do you assess at the beginning of every month? No, I assess after every couple of techniques, especially yeah. Yeah. if I'm trying something new. Mm -hmm. Right. But this also gives you a lot of freedom because you can try stuff, reassess and see if it worked. Yeah. So like, like I said, I'm trying stuff all the time, all the time. This year, the big thing for me has been like BFR training. I've been trying to work in. Obviously, I've been working out from home because I live in COVID central in New York yeah. City. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. right. So I've been doing a, like the, the DDRT training and, you know, as far as um, rehab, like the vibration stuff, like, you know, we did a, a big review on, on vibration technology. Yeah, it, it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, now, am I married to any of these things? No, Hyperice isn't paying me. Yeah. Right. Like I can get rid of that stuff tomorrow. Um, could I get rid of the, the DVRT bags? Sure. I mean, Josh is a nice guy. I don't really have any problem with Josh, but like, if it wasn't working for me, like it would, it would fall to its place in my program. Mm -hmm. Um, I think kettlebells is like a perfect example of that, right? Like, do we use kettlebells? It's like, yeah, but they're not really that versatile as a tool. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do a lot with a kettlebell. Yeah. No, you can't really do power exercise. I'm going to argue, guys, that like a swing is not a power exercise. You're not working for maximal velocity with a swing. Yeah. You're working for something in between maximal velocity and strength, which to me doesn't have a great place in programming. Now, if you like kettlebells, do kettlebells. I don't have a problem with you doing kettlebells if that's what you enjoy. Yeah. But I'm a basketball player, so mm -hmm. all I want is <laughs> to try to stay as fast as possible at 40. Yeah which is not as fast as possible at 20. I just want you guys to know that. Um, but, uh, you know, like all we care about is outcomes. We just keep testing stuff and testing stuff and testing stuff and testing stuff. And, and you find that a lot of like these new sexy exercises, they don't work. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're just too complicated. You know, from the, the exercises you were explaining before with like the, you know, the, the big unilateral step to trend to reach with a twist and back, like how the hell are you going to tell somebody to do that in the home exercise program? Yeah. Right. And that's, that's a big concern for me because carryover, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to get good carryover from session to session. Otherwise you never make improvements. So, yeah. um, did that answer your question? I know I kind of went off on a rant there. I'm sorry. I, I love the rants. That's all. That's all good. Yeah. I, I, I think you answered my question. Yeah. No, it's good. I like it. Um, so just being mindful of time, uh, yep. I just wanted to, I, I always do a little bit of a lightning round at the end of a podcast session. Okay. So it's three questions. Uh, and it's just kind of the first thing that kind of comes to your mind about it. So first question is the top three books that you have read on any topic. Can you give me a topic? <laughs> no, because... I want it to be anything. Like I honestly want it to be, it can be fiction, nonfiction. It can be relating to what you do for a living. It can be relating to what we talk about, okay. anything that comes to your mind. 
Okay. Uh, if it comes to human movement science education, brookbushinstitute.com has to be the way to go. Number two, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> uh, business-wise, if you haven't read The Lean Startup, uh, the whole idea of MVP, test, measure, optimize, reiterate, like, I, I stress that. I, I've, I've recommended that book more times than I can count. Mm -hmm. um, third book, uh, let's see here. I mean, look, anything on Audible. So here's a true story for you guys. Um, I have, I think I just crossed 320 books on Audible <laughs> in the last four years, five years. Yeah. I read between 70 and 100 books on Audible a year. I can tell you right now that the majority of my skill as a CEO of a scaling education technology company, I can attribute to Audible. The ability to listen to books on the go yeah. while I'm doing dishes, while I'm walking, while I'm doing chores, um, in my, during my warm up on my workout, I know most of you guys want to listen to like some hardcore music when you, you work out sometimes so do I, but like while you're warming up, throwing on 20 minutes of, of a marketing book or a leadership book, like change, it's changed everything. Yeah. So do you do what I do and you play it at like one and a half times speed so you can get through them quicker? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's just something everybody does. Um, you know, I think people start sounding pretty slow once you kind of get your ear attuned to listening to information. Um, yeah. It depends on the book, of course. Like, I'm listening to one book right now that's interviewing a bunch of CMOs, uh, chief marketing officers, and mm -hmm. that I have at like 1.35 because it goes by pretty quick already. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a huge thing. We are, by the way working on, and this will be the first six months of next year, we're going to have voiceovers for all of our courses. So you'll be able to nice. listen to our courses like Audible uh, awesome. to help you study, which I think is game changing. Yeah, no, I'll be wicked. Uh, yeah, like I think my problem with Audible, just just uh, as an aside, is is only that I like to take notes. And I find mm -hmm. if I'm doing like, so if I'm if I'm listening to a book or a podcast while I'm in order for me to pull the information in, I have to make notes. Like I have to write it out. That's my only problem with it is because I'm like, Oh, I heard something great. Uh, where was it? And then I'm like, then scaling back to try to find this section that I, so I often like, I listen to audible and then I have the book in front of me. So I actually buy the book and I have audible and I follow along as I'm listening to it, like one and a half or even like 1.75 speed. And I just underline the things, put a sticky note as I'm going through when I hear or read something that, uh, that sticks, but you might be a little bit more visual. Um, you know, the yeah. thing I remind people about audible is look, I mean, the reason why I use audible is because, okay, before this podcast, I did two and a half hours of writing for a lit review of morning. Yeah. Like I'm continuously reading research and writing. So that part of it, by the time I'm done, I'm done, yeah. right? Like I don't want to pick up and read another book at the end of the day. So, you know, the thing I tell people is, well, if I only get 10% of what I'm reading, well, then I got 10% out of 330, 20 books, whatever I, I, I'm at. Um, if I got 10% of that, that means I, over the last five years, have the equivalent of 32 books that I would have never read. Yeah. Right. Like it just matters that you're doing something and the books that I really enjoy, I often go back and listen to more than once. Yeah. You know, like good to great by Jim Collins. Like I've read that book three times, the lean mm. startup I've read two or three times. Like I'm about to read, um, 
delivering happiness again in remembrance of, of poor CEO Tony Shea, who mm. at 40 something years old passed away in a house fire two weeks ago, which is yeah. insane. But um, yeah, so Audible changed my life. Yeah. A dark way to go out of that. Sorry. <laughs> but in remembrance of Tony Shea, yeah. it's definitely a good book if you guys uh, have never read it. Delivering Happiness is amazing. Awesome. All right. Second question. Your top three mentors along your journey thus far. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, and I gotta be honest, I don't, I don't think anybody would argue with me on this one. I didn't really have singular mentors. Mm -hmm. I have some people who give me some good jobs and some good advice. Um, but the unfortunate thing is I've really had to strike my own path. And I think if you can find a mentor, that's great. If you can't, then things like Audible are where you need to turn. Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm reading about other CEOs all the time. I would say my, the, my role as CEO is where my imposter syndrome comes in mm. full bore, right? Yeah. Um, I feel pretty, pretty comfortable with my, my position as a physical therapist or a trainer or an educator, but like, you know, strategic development for a scaling company is not like something that is intuitive for a lot of us. So, yeah. um, I think reading, you know, having peers maybe mm -hmm. could also be really help. could really help. Um, if you can find a good mentor, great. I just think you just run into that problem of, is that mentor that far ahead of you? How much time do they really have to give you? Which is yeah. a problem that I've run into a lot. Like the people who I look up to are, busy yeah um so as am i yeah you know i kind of i kind of get where they're going so um yeah top three mentors I, I wish i could give you top three i don't have a top three mentors that is unfortunate but true that's all right hey you've got you laid out a perfect answer to that even though you didn't give three mentors that's perfect all right final question what piece of advice or wisdom would brent of today give 20 year old Brent. Ooh, man, I've had a pretty weird life. So <laughs> that's a tough one, man. I, it, you know, a lot of what I've accomplished, I never would have started if I knew how hard it was going to be. Mm. You know, whether it was um, becoming a, a formidable public speaker and educator in a, in a live setting, that was really, really challenging. Um, whether it was writing my first book, whether it was uh, going back to DPT school, you know, like I put myself through DPT school, worked, yeah. right? Like that was not easy to do. Um, if I would have known how hard it was going to be, I don't think I would have done it. This at the Brookbush Institute, holy cow. Yeah. By the time this is done to, you know, I had this crazy idea of I'm going to put a master's degree on your phone. You can do one hour at a time for $19.99 a month. People are like, you're crazy. Well, now mm -hmm. I'm almost here. But the flip side of that is, is I've had to write a master's degree. Yeah. I've had to write all of the content for 30 credits worth. Like it's a, it's thousands of pages I've written over the last yeah. six, seven years. Right. Yeah. And I have hundreds to go. Um, so I guess if I was going to give myself any advice, it would be like, just be calm, you know, not to try not to develop so much anxiety around all that needs to get done. It'll get done, 
mm-hmm. is you're just consistent. Um, I think, yeah, maybe, I think that would probably be the only advice I could give is like, like it's going to happen. It's just going to be harder than you thought, take longer than you thought, but you know, you'll have some fun along the way and yeah. And then 2020 will happen and uh, <laughs> yeah. fun will, fun will disappear altogether. Like fun right. in the entire world, not just for you, but the entire world will simultaneously stop having fun. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, everything you just said about <laughs> about kind of the process and the advice you give yourself is the same advice that I have to go back and give myself before I started this renovation. It's all going to take longer yeah. than you think it's going to take. It's going to be harder sure. than you think, but it'll be worth it in the end once you get through all of that pain. Yeah. All right. 2020 uh, will be over too. I mean, that's, oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 I just want to know when we're going to replace the word effed with 2020, like <laughs> it's totally 2020. Right. I yeah. think that's the correct use of that word now yeah. from here forward. Yeah. It was, it was interesting that uh, at the beginning of the year, I just remembered or leading up to it, everybody's like 2020, 2020 vision, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that ain't my vision of anything. Oh, man, <laughs> right? we had, I remember the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association had vision 2020. Yeah. Right? Of the goals they were going to hit by 2020. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was totally torpedoed this year. 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, crazy. Oh, my. All right. Um, kind of final couple things, just uh, giving you an opportunity to promote yourself. So um, I know you've already mentioned uh, the Brookbush Institute. So uh, do you have any products, projects that you're currently working on that you would like to promote? Uh, you can reiterate all the ones that you've already mentioned, but... Yeah, I mean, obviously, guys, you get that I'm passionate about what I'm doing. I'm trying to help colleagues as much as I possibly can, right? The first comprehensively evidence-based education platform, the first student-centered education platform that's actually working on optimizing delivery. Um, The fact that it's only $19.99 a month so that the barrier of entry into education is lower than it's ever been. The fact that you can do it on the go so that you can you know, I have the working professional in my mind when I'm creating this. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't expect you to sit down and study for eight hours. No, just take it out one credit at a time. We don't even have a, a final exam. Mm-hmm. You have final exams at the end of each module and get credit as you go. Yeah. Right. Which education research has shown to be much better way to learn anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, we make everything counts as 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 CPDs or CECs, whatever acronym you use for those continuing education credits. Right. It all counts for that and our certifications, which we just launched the Certified Personal Trainer, Integrated Manual Therapist, and Human Movement Specialist, which is mm-hmm. our corrective exercise certifications. Those are all included in membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we're working towards potentially having a master's degree under that umbrella too. We're like Netflix for yeah. education. Oh, yeah. Like I love Netflix um, just as a communication medium. I think as a communication delivery system, Netflix is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um and we're trying to do that for you guys. Like I, 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 I th- that's all. There's a membership. We do have some live workshops. Uh, they are a bit more expensive. Live workshops are more expensive to facilitate. Yeah. Um, we have been doing them by Zoom and it's been really successful. So if you guys want to do that, um, we can do that. And uh, of course, if you're not ready to buy anything from me, which is fine, we actually give away more educational content for free on our social media channels than most education platforms offer for pay yeah that i can guarantee like we 
we're up on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, like pretty much wherever you're at, we're trying to give as much great content as possible. Um, so yeah, I guess just uh, follow me if you're not ready to purchase. If, if the, the vet membership sounds good at $19.99 a month, which uh, there's the 30 day money back guarantee. You can cancel any time. There's really not, a, there's not, it's not a high risk proposition. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can get started there. Um, but look, I'm, I'm just trying to help. So yeah, you know, let us help you by, by getting started and following some of our stuff and engaging and yeah, man, we're going to, we're going to change the education world. I have no doubt awesome. about that. Awesome. And, uh, and I love, as I said, I followed your stuff for a long time. And I love what you're putting out. Um, I've seen a lot of the stuff that you have and the fact that like I'm on your newsletter as well. So once again, if you're not ready to buy, get part of the newsletter, uh, lots of free information there, uh, updates constantly. So you'll find out when the masters are released, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But yeah, the fact that uh, included with the monthly membership is however many certifications you can finish as quickly as you can devour the information, I think is something that isn't offered anywhere else. And it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. So people, people often ask. So if I finish the certification in a month and cancel, I can have my certification for 1999. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, our goal is like, if you really love our information, you'll stay on. Right. Like we're, I I think this is the right way to do education. Like you put the pressure is on us to provide value continuously, Mm -hmm. right? It should be low barrier of entry for you to get on. Now, of course it would be a challenge to finish certifications in a month. Like certifications are 50 to 80 hours. And that's, that's, that's based on industry standards. We want to be respected in the industry. We're not going to give you a 10 hour certification, but um, yeah, I mean, if you can finish it in a month, go for it. And then if you want to cancel, fine. And if you want to come back, fine. Like, it's like I said, it's like Netflix. And once you have an account with us, we keep your information. Yeah. Not that we're trying to like, we're not trying to sell. This isn't a privacy issue. We're not trying to sell your, your data or anything like that. No, we, we keep your account so you can come back and continue whenever you want. Yeah. Want to take some more CECs? We even redid that whole thing. I totally blew up recertification. Now recertification is two years from the date of your last course taken within a period that you have 20 credits for and it's all counted automatically and inside the membership for no additional fee so as long as you just keep taking courses you keep certified you just totally demolished recertification and how horribly inconvenient that whole thing is yep yeah awesome well uh i really appreciate you coming on and i appreciate the conversation and um, I, I really hope that we can do this again and, and maybe have a few more rants where we go off on whether it's oh, yeah. social media or whatever. I'll, maybe I'll just pick a whole bunch of topics and, uh, and we'll just go off a little bit. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule because I know you are very busy and, uh, and we'll chat soon. Now you know why. We're trying to do so much stuff for the colleagues that we love, man. State of the Industry Podcast.